Uh, do you like Bruce Willis? I don't know whether you do or not. He's a phenomenally successful actor. Whether you think he's a good actor or not is another thing, but he's phenomenally successful. He commands $20 million per movie. That's a lot of money. Uh, the Sunday Times magazine some time ago uh, uh, interviewed him and the reporter asked this question. Why, as a young man, did you choose to live so intensely, even recklessly? And he answered like this. I knew the fragility of life. In 1976-77, I almost lost my brother David in a car accident and I almost lost my sister to Hodgkin's disease, both within two months of each other. I went back to my little hometown and stayed there for six months while these guys recuperated. Then I had a friend from college who moved to New York and got killed in a freak accident when his taxi got sideswiped, jumped a curb, took him out in a second, dead, he says. So, early on, I really had a strong awareness of how quickly life can be taken away, how we really have no choice about who our parents are and what genes we're going to get or how long we're going to live or what the circumstances of our life are going to be. The only thing we do have is to try to live in the moment. Don't take life for granted. Live it up. Live it up. Live life to the full. Have a blast while it lasts. That's what Bruce Willis says. That's his approach to life. And the Bible says exactly the same thing. Yet you did hear me correctly. The Bible says, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there's nothing else but this life, that's the way we live, says Bruce Willis, and that's the way we should live, says the Bible. Bruce Willis's position is completely logical. If there is nothing else in life, live it up. Get as much as you can while you can. But of course, there's a lot of ifs there if there is nothing else in life. And the big question is, is this all there is? All the stuff we have around us? Now, that's the big question of the book of Ecclesiastes, the book we have open in front of us. Is life on planet Earth nothing more than a cosmic accident of random selection and pure chance? Or is there more to life? It's a, it's a question that most people ask at some point in their lives. Uh, what is life all about? You don't have to be deep and philosophical. I remember asking the big questions of life when I was a teenager. Now, I know teenagers who are deep and philosophical, but I wasn't one of them. I wasn't deep and I couldn't even spell philosophical. But I can remember asking myself, what is life all about? Why am I here? What will happen when I die? Most people ask that question at some point in their lives. See, do we have to conclude with Edmund Blackadder that life is like a broken pencil? Pointless. Is that it? That's how the book of Ecclesiastes begins. Look at chapter 1 and verse 2, the first chapter and verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. The teacher, incidentally, is the author of this book. He calls himself the teacher. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. So again, it's not the sort of thing we expect to read in the Bible. But that is the conclusion if there's nothing more to life than this. So in this book, in this book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher asks, if I take God out of the equation, what am I left with? He systematically looks at different aspects of life to see where meaning is found. And at the beginning of chapter 2, he turns his attention to pleasure. Do you see it there, verse 1? I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Is it in hedonism that we find the key to unlock the meaning of life, he says? 
And so, in chapter 2, it's a great chapter, the teacher throws himself into an opulent lifestyle of pleasure and parties and personal pampering. His life was a social world, full of fun. In verse 2, he turns to laughter. Do you see it there? He was the life and soul of the party, the office joker, the guy with the quick wit, the keen sense of humour. He always learned to see the funny side of life and he always had a smile on his face. He never took life too seriously. Looking at him, you wouldn't imagine that he ever had a care in the world. Look what he says in verse 2. Laughter, I said, is foolish. What does pleasure accomplish? He, of course, is not the only one to have discovered that having a laugh doesn't hold the key to life. I think of Tony Hancock, great comedian. Some would say the greatest comedian, British comedian ever. At the height of his fame in 1961, he was entertaining 15.5 million people. 30% of the adult population of the UK tuned in to Hancock's Half Hour. Some of you will remember it. He reduced people to tears of laughter. Yet you know what happened in 1968? He committed suicide. Apparently he had been unhappy for years. And of course it's true of many great comedians. We've read it so often in the tabloids. People who are on the stage can have us in stitches but behind the scenes are desperately unhappy. Depressives even. Being the funny guy. It may look fun but it doesn't give us the meaning of life. Now listen to the words of of one of Britain's best love comedians, again, sadly dead now, Ronnie Barker, uh, of two Ronnie's fame. He said this, I don't think life has any meaning. It has beauty, it has ugliness and pain, love, hate, great rewards and sometimes enormous responsibilities. It has laughter, but it has no meaning. Life is meaningless. Well, so much for laughter. As we look on, we see the teacher turned to drink there in verse 3. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. When he wasn't at home, you could be sure you'd find him down at his regular, down at the local. And when he wasn't there, he was out on the town dancing and drinking the night away. But when he woke up the next morning, head spinning, feeling like death warmed up, he'd always ask himself, why on earth did you do that? You see, that's verse 3. Do you see my mind still guiding me with wisdom. It may have seemed like so much fun at the time, but in the cold light of day... Uh, shortly after the, uh, England, England won the Rugby World Cup, uh, the Guardian had an article on Jason Robinson, one of the England players. The reporter wrote this, Until the age of 21, Jason Robinson devoured every temptation that came his way. His world, was a, his world was a whirlwind kaleidoscope of booze, birds and nightclubs. This is what Jason Robinson says. When I was going out clubbing and drinking, it didn't satisfy the hunger within me. Now you see, that is uh, what this guy was doing. Allowing your mind to guide you with, with wisdom. It's reflecting on your experience. And the teacher realised in the cold light, of, uh, cold light of day, drink doesn't deliver. So he turned to something more sophisticated. Verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. He got into real estate and and landscape gardening. Look at verse 5. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of trees, uh, fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. At this stage in his life, uh, the teacher could give you a great bank holiday Monday out with a family. The sun shining, 
uh, wandering around his stately home set in acres of beautifully manicured gardens. That was a marvellous way to spend a day. He created for himself a haven of, of relaxation and tranquility. And he had none of the everyday mundane responsibilities of life hanging over him. He relieved himself of all the domestic chores that you and I have to do. Look at verse 7. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Gone were the days of ironing, washing up, hoovering, making the bed. It was someone else's job to slave over a hot stove and, and keep the house tidy. And on top of all of that, he didn't have a financial worry in the world. Except, of course, what to do with all his money. See there, verse 7? He says, I I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. In today's language, he had countless stocks and shares and and Swiss bank accounts. He was rich, filthy rich. Uh, The uh, current credit crunch wouldn't have bothered him the slightest. He was above all that. And this is not empty boasting. You see, we're talking here about King Solomon. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 12 tells us that. And Solomon was rich beyond comprehension. History tells us that. To get it in perspective, King Solomon was more wealthy by far than Bill Gates. Solomon was more wealthy than whole nations. In building the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon built the most expensive building that has ever existed. His fortune made £20 million for a movie seem like pocket money. He was loaded. So he had everything he wanted, including live music all day long. Look at verse 8. He says, I acquired men and women singers. And so he's got wine, he's got song. Solomon certainly wasn't going to miss out on the women. Verse 8. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man, he says. Wine, women and song. What more could a man want? See, if life for you is about success, status, recognition, wealth, sex, pleasure, having a laugh, well then you'd swap places with Solomon any day. He had it all. That's what he says in verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He had it all. Talk to him about anything in life. He was one of those annoying people and he could say to you, been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. In fact, he'd bought the T-shirt company. He had it all then. But what was he left with? Well, look at verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all my hands had done and what I'd toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now that really is the ultimate morning after the night before experience. I've done it all, but what's the point, he cries. Despite all the stuff he'd acquired, all the experiences that he'd enjoyed, life left him with a a devastating so what? And so empty. But then you've probably been told that before. You know, that you can have everything and have nothing. Solomon may have been the first to discover this 3,000 years ago, but he wasn't the last. Wine, women and song, sex, drugs and rock and roll, eat, drink and be merry, they just don't deliver. That's what people say. Problem is, how do we know? See, how do you and I know? Wealthy as we are here in the West, and probably we've never had it so good, our resources are still limited, even if we live in Fullwood. 
We can't do everything, have everything, experience everything that we want. Some things are just out of our grasp, aren't they? And so when it comes to discovering the meaning of life or, or when we feel empty inside, we're always left wondering. if the, the only reason we haven't found what life is all about is because we haven't yet got that elusive thing that's, that's just beyond our reach. We think the key to life, the answer to life, is just one experience away. I think of a friend of ours. For years he wanted to travel the world. It's all he ever talked about. Kept uh, saving up for it. He said he's going to do it one day. Uh, I want to see the world, he'd say. Then I'll be happy. Then, then, Then I'll just be able to be content. I'll be satisfied with life. Well, he did see the world some years back. Or at least a very large part of it. He took six months off work. Uh, travelled around, no, no worries at all. He's still not happy. He now says, there's so much more to see. And his life is, is constantly about earning enough money to go and do another trip. Earning enough to do a really big trip. But we always want more, don't we? It's the same with success. Success, we're told, brings much uh, status, money, recognition... No matter how much you have, you always want some more. Uh, some of you will have heard me quote from John McEnroe before. I love this book. Uh, it's his autobiography, Serious. And uh, it, it's brilliant. It's really honest. And uh, this is what he says. On October the 1st, 1984, I was standing in the Portland airport waiting to board a flight to LA for a week off. And suddenly I thought, I'm the greatest tennis player who ever lived. Why am I so empty inside? Except for the French Open and one tournament just before the Open... I won every tournament I played in 1984. 13 out of 15 tournaments. 82 out of 85 matches. No one had ever had a year like that in tennis before. No one has had since. But it wasn't enough, he says. The feeling had been building up for a while. I'd been number one for four years and I never felt especially happy. Uh, Shortly after that, as you read on, he meets Tatum O'Neill, the actress. And he says this. Was I looking for the love of my life? I don't know. I was searching for something. In a sense, finding her then was a matter of timing as much as anything else. I was just sick of feeling empty. I wanted something more than money out of all that I'd accomplished, he says. See, John McEnroe had success, phenomenal success. And with success came money, a recognition, a glamorous lifestyle. But he was empty. What about Barry Humphreys? of uh, Dame Edna Everidge fame. She's a fine woman, isn't she? Uh, Listen to what he says at the beginning of his autobiography. I always wanted more. Those are the first words. I always wanted more. I never had enough milk or money or socks or sex or holidays or first editions or solitude or gramophone records or free meals or real friends or guiltless pleasure or neckties or applause or or unquestioning love. Of course, I've had more than my share of most of these commodities, but it always left me with a vague feeling of unfulfilment. Where was the rest, he asks. See, hedonism, materialism, success, popularity, adulation, they don't deliver. Solomon, Barry Humphreys, John McEnroe, I could go on and on quoting people, they all say the same. The question for you and me, though, is will we believe them? Will we listen to them? Or are we going to keep believing that the only reason we haven't found the meaning of life is because we haven't experienced that one thing that at the moment, right now, is just out of our grasp? 
I make people all the time whose lives are, and maybe you do too, whose lives are an endless cycle of setting goals, achieving those goals, feeling euphoria for a moment, and then feeling emptiness. And so they start again. They set a goal. They achieve the goal. They feel euphoric and then they feel empty. Goal, achievement, euphoria, emptiness. Goal, achievement, euphoria. It's a a sickening cycle that people go through. People are always hoping the next thing will do the trick. But no thing in life can fully satisfy. Now that's what Solomon discovered. Don't you think we'd be wise to listen to him? Because, you see, we can't come to this conclusion from our own experience because we don't have the means to live this lifestyle. We're always going to be left wondering if there's one more thing. Left wondering if the only reason we're not really satisfied is because we haven't searched in the right place yet. Haven't had the elusive experience. Haven't reached the pinnacle of our career. Haven't found the love of our life. Haven't... Solomon had done it all. He experienced everything and he stepped back. This is what is so impressive about him. He asked of every experience, is this what life is really all about? That's what he means in verse 9 when he says, my wisdom stayed with me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. See, all the time he asked the question, what was that all about? Of course, that's something that most people seem incapable of doing. I don't know about you, I get so caught up in whatever I'm into at the time, events so overwhelm me, that I can't think clearly and objectively. Are you like that? We're so enamoured with something, we won't listen to the advice of others, let alone take a step back ourselves, but Solomon did, you see. That's why he's worth listening to. And that's why he concluded, as he did in verse 11... When I surveyed all my hands had done and what I toured to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, please, don't mishear him. He doesn't say, and this is very important, he doesn't say pleasure is not pleasurable. He makes no bones about it. His experiences were enjoyable. See there in verse 10, my heart took delight in all my work. Oh, Solomon enjoyed his experiences, his life. He enjoyed it, but it wasn't satisfying. Pleasurable, yes, satisfying, no. Not in the sense that it could give him the meaning of life, anyway. Not in that sense satisfying. The enjoyment of the moment was his only reward. Once the moment was gone, what was left? What was that all about? Meaningless, he says. It's a devastating conclusion, isn't it? And that, I think, is why most people won't do what he did, step back from their experiences. Because I think most of us, deep down, are scared that we may be left with this conclusion, meaninglessness. But God asks this evening, will you be honest with yourself? Will you you take a step back? I think what he also does is he says, "Will will you actually project yourself forward into the future? Imagine yourself on your deathbed. Imagine you're on your deathbed and you're looking back over your life and you're asking, what was all that about? It's a scary thing to do. But isn't it better to do it now when you can do something about it than to wait until you are on your deathbed and to conclude that life was just a trivial pursuit of meaninglessness? 
where then will we find meaning? Well, as we come to the end this evening, uh, look at the end of the chapter. Chapter 2, verse 24. Bottom right-hand side. Chapter 2, verse 24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. That's the conclusion if you take God out of the equation. Then you might as well just try and get as much as you can out of life. But then look what he goes on to say. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? I wonder if you see what's going on there. And I wonder if you see in those verses how kind God is. This is saying God will not let us find the meaning of life in hedonism or materialism or success or wealth or popularity or anything. And the reason God won't let us find the meaning of life in those things is because the meaning of life is not in those things. How kind of God to set up the world, to set up life in a way that that means that we won't be satisfied in anything else and then discover on our deathbed that it wasn't really what life was all about anyway. Isn't that kind of him? Because the only way we can find the meaning of life is to find him. The living God knows that if we begin to feel satisfied without him, then we won't bother with him. And then we not only miss out on the real meaning of life, but even more devastating, I'll miss out on the life to come. Richard spoke earlier about the certainty of going and being with God in heaven. That will be a place unimaginably wonderful, a place of total satisfaction forever. I don't want to miss out on that. But you see, you and I will miss out on that if we're looking for something else in life and ignoring the living God because that's the worst thing we can ever do. The God who gives us everything, ignoring him and pushing him out, what a terrible crime. And so God is so kind. He's so kind that even though we do that with him, he won't let us find satisfaction anywhere else until we've come back to him. One writer puts it like this, the irritation and wearisomeness of life is God's strategy to remind us of our need of him. How kind of God to make the world like that. And that's why Solomon says to look for the meaning of life apart from God is madness. Do you see how he explains it in verse 11? He says it's like chasing after the wind. See if at the end of this service you see me running up and down Canterbury Avenue here and you wonder why I'm running around up and down, up and down and I say to you I'm trying to catch the wind. You will say... He's, uh, he's like a, a guy who calls himself a poached egg. He's mad. You will be calling, I hope, for the men in white coats to take me away. Solomon says to spend your life looking for the meaning of life in pleasure or wealth or whatever is it's like ch- it's madness. It's like chasing after the wind. Well, that's what Solomon said. A, a thousand years later, uh, Jesus Christ said these words. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You see, even if you don't feel empty, even if you feel satisfied with your lot in life, what is the point if you lose your soul? And what is the point if you miss the greatest prize of all, eternal life? What is the point of just being satisfied now and missing out on that? 
And so as we close, I'm going to ask you tonight, will you think about coming along to the course that uh, David mentioned earlier, Christianity Explored? Uh, It's a course that we run here um, that uh, is, uh, well, it's non-threatening. You can come and have a nice meal and then you can ask any questions you like about life, the universe, everything. We don't have all the answers, but you can ask the questions. You can ask any questions about Christianity and why we believe what we believe. And, well, we do have some of the answers on that. Uh, So you can pick up one of these. Or at the end of the service, uh, you could fill in the, um, uh, the little slip that we've put on the back of the service sheet. If you can't find one of these, just fill that in um, and hand it to me or to uh, one of us here or hand it into the, uh, to the uh, office over the way there. Uh, Christianity Explored is a chance, you see, to do what Solomon did. It's a chance to, to take a step back, to be honest, uh, to look at what life is really all about, to consider Jesus Christ and his claims. The claim is that he is the one around whom the whole universe revolves. And I'm asking you, please don't put it off. Because I would guess there's a good number here today who've said, yeah, that kind of makes sense, I need to look into that. And I'll tell you what often happens now, you go away and just get on with life and and life passes you by. And I'm pleading with you to think, no, I'm going to do something about it. Come along to week one of Christianity Explored. You don't have to come back. We won't send the boys round if you don't come back. We haven't got any boys to send round, that's why. <laughs> Look, we started with Bruce Willis this evening. We'll let him have the last word, shall we? Let me quote him. He says, Don't assume that you have forever. Don't postpone things. Don't wait. People think we have all the time in the world that we're going to live forever. I know we don't, he says. Life can be snapped out in a second. Even if you live to be 80 or 90, it still goes by in a flash. When you're a kid, summer seems like forever. Now, months go by in a blink. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're such a kind God uh, that even though we ignore you and we probably deserve for you just to say, well, stuff it then, you're kind and you've set the world up in a way that means that uh, we can't find satisfaction anywhere else until we found you. We thank you that you always have open arms for those who come running back to you. And we pray for all of us today to to take a step back as Solomon did, to be honest with ourselves and with our experiences and to really try to get to grips with this big question of where meaning in life can be found. Please help folks here tonight who've come and perhaps been struck by what they've heard uh, to courageously take a step to find things out some more. And uh, please help us all to go on thinking these things through seriously. Amen.